We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Wow, you sound awesome. How do I sound right now? You sound amazing, my friend. So let me tell you, it was because of you. Like we looked at your microphone setup, and our producer, DJ Sales, shout out to Sales. Um, he said, Torrance, something's wrong with your mic. And I'm like, well, I've been using it the same exact way for the last two and a half years. He said, well, something's wrong with your mic. And so literally made a minor adjustment. And I think I sound like you, Jay, like crystal clear. Yes, yes. And I will let you know that my husband has been making fun of my new setup. As you can see, he says, wow, aren't you a professional podcaster? I'm like, Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> he's oh, oh, so he's trying to take little jabs. He's oh, trying. Yeah. He's trying to take little jabs. Okay, got it, got yeah. it, got it. Chad, sit back, sit back, sit back. Listen, we're working over here. <laughs> we're just trying to do some things. We're trying to have a good time. It took us a moment to get to this position, but listen, we got it. We got cameras, we got mics, we got sound, and we got content. How you feel? Feel good. It's sunny out here in Indiana and beautiful. And I got out of the house today and had my Fazoli's run and everything is good with life. How about you? Yeah. And wait a minute. You are coming up on your second shot, right? Um, so when this is live on Thursday, my shot will be done. Ah, <gasps> I'm so, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conversation going around um, as it relates to the shots. Of course, you saw the the uh, announcement earlier this week around the Johnson and Johnson shot Pause. being kind of tabled. Pause for a moment. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Like that wasn't alarming for me. I, you know, I think, listen, we got to spend some time figuring out what happened to the individuals that experienced the blood clot and uh, unfortunately for the one or two that may have lost their life. I don't yep. think the pause in it is a bad thing. I think that this is something that should be expected. We know that the information is going to change. I think yep. for me, Jay, the only thing that I care, mm -hmm. I really care about is not so much so that the information may be changing mm -hmm. is that they don't hold back information and they should have told us. Yes. I agree. I agree. Does that make sense? Yeah. I actually, I said to, to Chad when that came out a couple of days ago, I said, I know that some people will, will say, people who didn't, didn't want to take the vaccine in the first place, some will say, hey, like we told you it's not safe. It's not this. And, but it made me actually feel so much safer that in 7 million people, six women had adverse reactions and our FDA and CDC was cautious enough to say, hold on, let's just take a minute and make sure that these are not causal, right? That there's no direct correlation, um, but that it is in line with the general population for the same um, blood clot. I think it's a, it's a cerebral blood clot. And it made me feel a lot more confident 
and the people that are making these decisions because they are being so transparent, they're being forthcoming, and they're taking extra caution that you know they they may not have even needed to just to make sure that we're as safe as possible. Yeah, no, I absolutely appreciate that. And I'm happy, you know, I'm happy that we are um, just making stride towards some degree of <clears throat> what's the word that I'm looking for? I just feel like more people are feeling like if we can just get through the summer, yes, we we can have a bit of normalcy now. Unfortunately, we're going to experience something here in Maryland that you may not be familiar with. Uh, do you know what a cicada is? Oh, God. Yes. We're getting them in Indiana, like the 13-year cycle or something. You're getting them this year, too? Yes. Yes. So I didn't know. See, so Ooh. so let me tell you, I'm, I'm bugging out because this wasn't <laughs> something that I was aware of when I was growing up. If it happened, uh. I absolutely <laughs> missed it. So ours are uh, expected to start showing up in mid-May. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be the vicious cycle. So then you are going to experience the same summer that I am. Yes. And I don't know how you handle it, but trust me, when, when those jokers oh. are out, I let them have free reign. So I limit my outdoor movement. Yeah, I... I love the sound of them. Like I love yeah. listening to them. It's like a childhood thing, I guess. But my okay. my dogs love to eat the shells. And so Ugh. it's so gross. I'm like <laughs> walking the dogs and Stella's just munching away on little fucking cicada shells and it grosses me out so bad. <laughs> okay, so listen. So for all of the listeners out there uh, who you don't know what a cicada is, a cicada is like a very big caterpillar. It's a very, oh. it's like a caterpillar on steroids, not as long, but like four times, five times as fat. And, and mm. like Julie says, it, it sheds its shell. Um, but you know what, Julie? So when it sheds the shell, that's when it first comes out of the ground, right? I have no idea. They're always like on okay. trees and stuff at our house. So yes, they land right. and right. come out. I have no idea. <laughs> so for all of you listening who don't know what cicadas are, they come out of the ground like they have been underground for like 20 years or 17 years or some crazy number. And they just all come out of the ground. And it's almost like the plague. Like if you live near trees, like Julie has alluded <laughs> to, trust me. You do not want to be outside. It's in abundance. So we didn't say we were going to push record because we want to talk about cicadas. <laughs> I'm happy that you will be fully vaccinated. Celebration Thank you. to you and the yeah. family. My family is um, beginning to get their vaccinations. Good. Extended family members are beginning to get the vaccinations. All of them are smiling and happy. So um, definitely happy for you on that. So let me talk about the Fed. Uh, so the Fed is hosting a conference on racism uh, in economics. They actually hosted it this week. Uh, and the profession right now, Julie, is grappling with the uncomfortable truth that it has historical roots and practices that are mired in systemic bias. So the go figure. The Fed is is acknowledging this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And still, as they say, still starkly white and 
male. But part of the challenge, you know, with the Fed, even in this conference around racism and bias and inclusion, first of all, let me just say I'm happy that they are acknowledging it. Yep. And found it important enough to host a conference, even in this virtual, you know, posture. They said, look, this is something that we need to be talking about. I've long said, long, long, long said, and I'm talking since like 2014. I said, if we could do DNI right in Silicon Valley, Wall Street and the power quarters of Washington, D.C., we would see a sea change in organizations across the globe. If we could just hit those three geographies, San Francisco. Wall Street and the power quarters of Washington, D.C. But they say part of the challenge, Julie, is that there are too few black Americans uh, that are even in the profession. Last year, or I'm sorry, in 2019, out of the doctorate degrees in economics, 13 of them went to black individuals uh, of the 464 awarded. Wow. So that's actually an alarming number, like 13 out of 464. So the question becomes, mm-hmm. are we not going into the, the space? Are we not going into the industry? Are we experiencing something in that academic um, you know, pursuit mm-hmm. that is preventing us? Almost kind of like the interviewing process when we say, well, what stage are they or what phase of the interview process are they dropping out? Like, I'd love to see, are we enrolling? but we're dropping out at some particular reason. I think we have to absolutely get our arms around that because we need to have that representation in every aspect of business, every aspect of industry and the federal government or the Fed, I should say, should be included. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a really big step forward. And, you know, I I acknowledge that it looks like there's a lack of pipeline. Um, But I think we also just have to rethink our traditional focus on the same educational processes and values that have elevated white people for so long and have not engaged and elevated black people um, doing the same thing is not going to change anything. So how do we get black university students, black high school students interested in economics and seen as something one that's real and applicable to their lives and their communities and something that they can influence and change. That's not just the white power structure retaining that power. No, you actually raise a very good point. One of the things that they covered in that article over on Bloomberg is they they're talking about a strategy uh, or at least they are discussing it. They discussed it at the conference, you know, uh, suggesting that they're not going to raise rates, um, interest rates because, the raising of interest rates is detrimental on certain communities. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to to kind of leave them there uh, because they didn't want to hit marginalized communities that have been impacted during COVID as it relates to the work that they are or are not able to do. Thoughtful, absolutely thoughtful. And when you ask the question around, well, how do we get the interest uh, raised with high school students and college students? It's scenarios like that. It's that real life example like that. Like this is why this work is important. If we had the contribution of people like you with your lived experience, what's it like for you to live in Caprini Green in Chicago? 
What's it like for you to live off of Martin Luther King Avenue here in Baltimore, Maryland? What's it like to be mm-hmm. next to just, you know, a stone's throw away from Skid Row in the Oakland area? If we have people like that contributing to the conversation, we may have different programs for different banks, different lending institutions. I, I just think that we can absolutely change that. So I'm encouraged that the Fed is having this conversation, and I hope that they share it far and wide. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I love this ne- next little topic you put in our uh, show notes for today. Employers say college grads lack needed skills, but that could be changing. As soon as this came to my inbox, I sent it to my kids and I said, read this, please. And you know, and, and let me tell you, you know what, what the reason why I shared it is not so much so to talk about it, but to think about I remember looking at the Prepared You project from Bentley University back in 2014, Mm -hmm. and it talked about and illustrated all of this to a very deep degree. Like it was probably a 40 page report that the university put together. They interviewed parents. They interviewed uh, undergraduate students. They interviewed employers. And it was comprehensive in their um, you know, query and then resolution that they ain't ready. Yeah. Like most undergraduates, and and I want to underscore most undergraduates. We didn't say most black undergraduates. Yep. We didn't say most women undergraduates. We didn't say most Hispanic or Latina, Latin undergraduates. Most undergraduates are unprepared to enter into the workforce, period. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that colleges and universities need to do a lot better job. Parents need to do a lot better job. But companies also need to do a better job getting those first-time workers into internships. I'm seeing many college students right now with disabilities that are coming to us at Disability Solutions who are working on senior thesis who are some of them are are in their MBA or their master's program and they are not getting that real life real world experience because they're not being considered by employers because of their disabilities and so we've got work to do all the way around here but great yeah, article and, and and yeah and it and it bring it begs the question as to you know why are why are parents still subscribing to um, these extremely high amounts for a collegiate or an academic education? Yep. Like, why are we paying $40,000, $50,000, $70,000 per year when, when students are exiting? Now, again, you could say, well, it's nothing wrong with the education. The student hasn't committed. They haven't submitted themselves to the rigor of the journey. You could say that. But I think at some particular point, if we are looking at, and I only quoted 2014, Mm -hmm. but if you're looking at a connection with data that was back in 2014, reading the same way in 2021, then somebody, NACE, somebody should be saying to themselves, let's reevaluate this scenario. Right. I say it all the time here, Julie, you know, as it relates to our graduation rate 
uh, in Baltimore. And I don't know what the number is. The last time I checked, our graduation rate was something like 60, 65, 67 percent, something like that. Yeah. And I always tell my friends that are in uh, education, like, why do you all why don't you all lock all of the teachers in a hotel room? Lock all of the pastors, the police chief, like the heads of various agencies, lock everybody in a hotel room for a weekend and say, you're not coming out until we figure out how we're going to reeducate our children in a way that is promising. Yeah. Because at some point you got to say to yourself, it's not just the student. It's how we are instructing. It's how we are delivering the information, so on and so forth. Yeah. And just as a complete side note, something we haven't talked about yet is the decriminalization of drugs and and prostitution and those kind of things in Baltimore City. Mm. And not a direct correlation, but an interesting side conversation about the structure of the family, the structure of kids who are dropping out because they're getting in trouble. All of those kind of things that um, are really taking opportunities away from kids who have to get through but are capable of more. How will Baltimore City's approach have an impact, positive or negative, right? I think it's a bit of an experiment um, on the education system not just in high school, but beyond that. Absolutely. Are you talking about the uh, recent announcement or position taken by um, Marilyn Mosby? Yes. Okay. Got it. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's interesting it, because it is very new. Uh, and of course she's taken a bit of heat for that, which was to be expected. I'm sure yeah. she thought it through. I'm sure her team thought it through. They weighed the pros and the cons of such. I believe that it will ultimately have a positive impact. You know, Mayor Kurt Schmoke did something like this in Baltimore probably 25, 30 years ago. I wasn't here at that time, so I can't speak to it with any level of uh, experience or authority. Uh-huh. But, but I think what she's doing is simply saying, why don't we reallocate these resources? Let's really focus our police units and other city uh, personnel on matters that are a bit more important. And quite frankly, why are we chasing down, you know, folks like air fresheners in the window? Why are we chasing those types of things when we can, you know, spend our time focused on uh, things that are a bit more serious? I'm glad you raised that point. Yeah. Yeah. So we won't even. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) So, so no, we won't do it. Uh, so did you see the story on NBC News? The White Lives Matter rally <laughs> flops. <laughs> All across the nation. Oh, that made me so it happy. Flopped. It's like a big fat. Well, tell me why. I mean, like, Whoa. forget the story for a moment. Listen, you guys can go to NBC News and you can find the article. The article is titled White Lives Matter rallies flop as hardly anyone shows up. Why does that make you smile so much? Um, because it, it it shows that these people who've been protesting for these last four years, um, again, understand that they are not, I'll just be honest, they are not desirable in this society. They are not going to get support from the power corridors of DC in the way that they had them before. And showing up is more of a danger to them than it is an opportunity. Um, and, you know, 
fuck y'all just stay home and hide under your rock where you came from and let the rest of us get on with our business, you know, and, and then we can get back to the systemic, um, over covert, you know, unconscious racism, things that are happening in the subtleties that have much more of an impact, but we've had so much time focused on these loud and proud white nationalists that it's, it's hard to address the everyday racism that we see. Yeah, and I didn't know that the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2016 categorized them as a hate group. Yep. I didn't know that. Uh, I thought it was really just a result of someone saying, I'm tired of hearing the slogan Black Lives Matter. Uh, and so they came up with the slogan of White Lives Matter. But it looks like uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center said, nah, it's a little bit more than that. Um, what the article talks about, it talks about, you know, many of the articles, I'm sorry, many of the rallies were disrupted in several cities after activists um, infiltrated the online groups and began to take <laughs> some of the messaging and screenshot it and post it and put it out. And so folks were able to kind of counter protest, if you will, in these mm -hmm. areas. Um, I don't know, but you said it well, you know, like, look, for real, I, I don't, I'm not Pollyannish enough to, to think that we are going to stamp out racism uh, in my lifetime, I, I would love for us to do that. But, you know, it's just too many of those folks that are running around. And so the second best option is live under a rock. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what really, really I'd, I'd love to see happen. I'd love to see, you know, organizations find a way to make it uncomfortable for racists to be in the organization and that all of them decide that they want to go work for, you know, a certain company, Yeah. whether it's starting a new company or going to work for a company that embraces racists and hate and, yep. you know, all of these, these, uh, these views that are separatist, if you will. And that's what I'd love to see. I'd love for us to have, um, you know, incredibly uh, inclusive and, you know, belonging fed organizations over here working in harmony and all of you just go work together, like whatever that is, you know, yeah. making license plates, building furniture, you know, whatever, just yeah. go work together. So that's what I like to see. But I like you. I smiled as well. When I saw the headline, I was like, we at least got to talk about that for a moment. <laughs> so uh, before we get into this week's show, the quote is, I always wanted to be someone better the next day than I was the day before, said by Sydney Portier. Let's get into this week's show. Excellent. Excellent. So for me this week, do you watch TikTok? Do you have TikTok? No and no. Okay. So if you ever want to feel better about life, TikTok is a great place to do that. And you've heard me bang on TikTok okay. a lot on this show. Um, but if I'm if I'm in a really bad mood, TikTok is going to bring me out of that that mood. And so <laughs> I was watching TikTok last night. Um, just wait, 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 wait. Yes. Do you have a TikTok account? Yes, but I don't do anything. I'm just a stalker. Like I just watch videos. <laughs> so you're just lurking. You're I'm just, just lurking. a lurker. You're yes. just lurking. I, I'm not dancing. Okay, I'm not okay, doing anything. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. If I could see that right there. I mean, I'm going to get a Jerusalem dance on. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. so all of a sudden my TikToks are flooded with this like 
you have to go back to the office post pandemic and all these people are like, yeah, it's not freaking happening. I'm not going back to the office. I don't know who, who y'all think you are, but I'll find a new job. And a couple other conversations I've had this week really got me thinking we're entering into that post COVID work world. And what are some of this, the stories that we're seeing that are going to maybe shape um, what the next year looks like. And probably the biggest one in terms of impact is that in March, we had 15 million job openings, according to ZipRecruiter. Before the pandemic, March before the pandemic, we had 10 million open job jobs posted. So we're actually higher now in job openings than pre-pandemic. Employers are kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. They're thinking about reopening permanently, restaffing permanently. And guess what? No one is applying for these jobs. We're actually seeing record low um, apply clicks. And that's, I'm hearing that from employers that we're working with. I'm hearing that from our programmatic partners and vendors. It's like, we've got inventory. Where the hell are the job seekers? And it's really interesting, right? Like, there is, Something I think has shifted in our world that's going to say, am I going to go back to that shitty $7.25 an hour job? Am I going to go back and work for the man for $10 an hour after I've been paid to stay home at something that looks much more like a livable wage than I've ever been able to earn in my life? Or am I supposed to go back out and and be um, put myself in danger in exchange for a job before we get to like that herd immunity level? And one of the one of our programmatic partners said this is the greatest market imbalance they've seen between job openings and job seekers as long as they've been in this industry. So I, you know, I'd be very curious to see you said pre-pandemic 10 million job openings currently 15 million job openings yep and the piece that i i look at as it relates to the story julie is that i think for every other week since january every other week i've seen an article from somewhere from someone that says seven out of ten people are going to look for work after the pandemic Mm -hmm. eight out of ten people are going to look for work after the pandemic. I've not seen an article yet that's under half. Like it's been six, it's been seven, it's been eight. So when you couple the the continuous flow of that sentiment Mm -hmm. that people are like, look, I'm just waiting for this to be over and I'm out of here. When you think about the abundance or the growth in openings, And then the stat you just threw in that people are not clicking. I think the one data point that I'm missing in that is, well, what's happening to the people? You know, are they starting new businesses? Are they, uh, are you, did you allude to them being on unemployment and they are being, because I can't imagine that unemployment is making them happy. So do you have any insight on like, where, where are they? Yeah. So definitely there are people that are, living on enhanced unemployment and not because people want to live on unemployment. I'm so fucking over the narrative that says all these people are just living on couches, you know, enjoying their life. That's bullshit. People want to work, but they've seen the 1% grow to trillionaires. They've seen um, massive income, racial, economic 
inequality and there's still that damn pandemic out there and people are hesitant to go back and work for poverty wages, right? And most of the openings are in hospitality, leisure, restaurant, retail. And when they can have a better quality of life by staying on unemployment until this is over. Um, The other thing though, is that we're also seeing I believe record low workforce participation rates. So when you're saying like seven out of 10 or eight out of 10, that in my brain doesn't include the people that have already said, I'm out, like I'm not even looking for a job, I'm good. Um, And I I think the thing is, is that, and the other thing is just culturally, people wanna work from home. And so they're looking for those remote opportunities, even as we're seeing some companies try to stuff people back into the office space. And so there's still so much in play and so much kind of uncertainty that as we start to think about staffing back back up, I think employers are going to one have to start thinking about what are the benefits and the values of me working here? Is this job worth what I'm paying for it? Because the likelihood for a lot of these entry level and, and labor focused positions is you're not paying someone a wage that they can live off of. And how do we help people understand that if you've given up on your job search, but you're ready to go back to work, you got to get back on the horse and do it, right? I know people are probably discouraged. They're probably like, hey, you know, I lost my job in January and I sent out a bunch of resumes and I never got anything. If you're looking, now is the time to go grab that job. Yeah, you got a lot to choose from. And I do like the little LinkedIn ad around the stay at home parent. So apparently that's a a part of the profile. It allows them to, I I mean, how is LinkedIn suggesting that people use that? And that's not standard because I haven't seen, I've never seen it. So you had to go, how did you find that? So I think this one, again, I think this was an HR dive um, either late last week or early this week. And it kind of made me laugh because they're they're like allowing it as a job title now but i've seen plenty of of uh, women who have okay. been like you know i always kind of laugh at them but like domestic goddess uh you know from 2004 to 2014 it's like no i don't think it's that you couldn't do it before but now linkedin is validating it by having those titles kind of in their database. So it could be caregiver or um, medical leave. It could be staying at home to raise family. Like they're, which is kind of cool outside of the stay at home parent is they're allowing you to kind of tailor your LinkedIn profile in the same way that you may tailor your resume with a little bit more respect into it. Um, I don't know what it's going to do for anyone who is actually a stay-at-home parent. I mean, is is an employer going to look at that mom any differently because their LinkedIn profile says that they stayed at home, good or bad? I, I mean, I think the jury's still out on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm over here thumbing through. I'm really like moving through an article fairly quickly um, on Fortune. And it was talking about women, you know, 50%, 51% of the population, 47% of the labor base, 57% of all college graduates, according to Pew Research, and you would think that their numbers would be a lot higher. 51% of the population, 47% of the labor base, 57% of all college graduates, and yet that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have so much work to do. And when we talk about stay-at-home moms, um, pardon me, when we talk about um, how am I going to put this out there the right way? Uh, when we talk about pay inequity, mm-hmm. 
one of the areas where we struggled the most, uh, one of the categories where we struggled the most is single moms that are like the chief breadwinner. So if you are a single mother taking care of a household, you typically are earning about 66 cents for every dollar that your white male counterpart is earning. Like they actually are almost one of the lowest. I would say that people with disabilities probably are a little bit lower than them. But when we look at groups of able-bodied groups, single moms that are the chief breadwinner, lowest um in terms of earnings so we got a lot of work to yeah do. and and i've been a single mom and the and the not the chief breadwinner but the only breadwinner and i didn't have the opportunity to negotiate i didn't have the opportunity to work late sometimes i didn't have the opportunity to go and have those cocktails after and it makes a difference it's a huge difference and we don't recognize it and i'm not sure that i'm not sure how advertising it is going to help it, it may start to normalize but I, I don't know. Well, 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 when you say advertising, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, rather than than just you can have a gap in your employment, right, on LinkedIn and not call it out. Or you can call it out and say from these years to these years during this period where I otherwise would have nothing, I was a stay-at-home parent or I was a stay-at-home caregiver. Okay, gotcha. Um, I don't know that that's going to do any any good to anybody, but it's an interesting approach. Okay. No, I can get with that. Uh, I can appreciate that. Uh, You also have something up around Salesforce. Yeah. So then kind of just the last kind of wrap up for me is is the tale between two cities. So this week, Salesforce.com started to allow for volunteers of basically groups of 100 to of vaccinated employees to return to some of its offices. So making it the first U.S. company to give preferential treatment. I don't know if returning to the office is preferential treatment, but that's how they're touting it over those who have determined not to take the shot or who are not yet eligible to take the shot. On the other hand, the the other city, we have Google who said, hey, we're going remote. This is the new way of life. We're here. Who's now decided, you know what? You're going to have to come back to the office eventually when we open back up. And if you want to work from home for any more than two weeks, it's basically going to be a written request that we'll think about or not think about approving. So fuck Google, right? But I mean, two very different approaches to just setting the ambiance or the desirability about coming back to the office in ways that could and will probably bite both of them in the ass. Yeah, I you know, I'm just I'm 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 a bit torn by this. Um I don't know. I I guess, you know, have having had the luxury of being remote, um I've had an office on a couple of occasions in the 23 years that I have been on my own. Um I'm a bit torn and I'm torn in the sense of I wouldn't make returning to the office mandatory unless you are mission essential. Yes. Like I think about, um, you know, we don't need to go into the examples. I mean, we, we know who is mission essential. It is just mandatory that their presence is there. They need to work boards. 
They need to handle security of the uh, the dome, the uh, uh, you know the structure, whatever the case may be. Mission critical, and I don't understand if teams are still being productive. Yep. See, here's the deal: if we looked at Salesforce's numbers and Google's numbers, I bet they haven't taken a hit on the balance sheet. Oh no, they've won on the balance sheet. They've won on the balance sheet. So mm-hmm. if we're winning. Yeah. You know, in at minimum, if we're maintaining and in many instances we're winning, then why are we why are we forcing people to have to have yet one more consideration in the grand scheme of things? Like if we know that people are reticent, hesitant to return to the office space, why are we forcing that upon them yep. as a decision? When they've been productive. Yeah. Your balance sheet says that they've been productive. Yeah. And and guess what? If you can't trust people to do their work at home, then you shouldn't shouldn't hire them. And I can say that as someone who runs a team remotely. If I can't trust you to do your job and to live by our mission and to drive our mission, you're not going to be here. And why micromanage? Why force people back into situations that make their life harder so that you can have that physical control and oversight of them? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Again, I'm sure it's positions like that, Jay, that are forcing or I'm sorry, not forcing. I'm sure it's statements like that it's that give the statement that makes me look great in the press mm-hmm. and then take it away behind the scenes. Yep. It's those types of actions that are contributing to the five, six, seven out of 10 people that said, when this pandemic is over, I'm out, I'm yeah. bouncing. Yeah. I think we're going to see a major, major rise in entrepreneurial activity and innovation. Yep. I think we are going to see a huge spike in those numbers People from some of these tech companies, people from other companies are going to say, you know, now is my time. Yep. You know, now is my time to 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 branch out and to go after that idea that I wanted to go after. Now's my time to address this chasm, this gap, yep. this insensitivity that my employer just recently showed. I'm going to do something around that. We're going to see a major spike towards the end of the year and next year around creative contribution in the marketplace. Watch. So that is the perfect place to break into an ad for our favorite sponsor, JobVite. Absolutely. Really quick before Torin and I hop back into the episode, have you heard about the new JobVite? The social recruiting innovator is now the end-to-end TA suite leader, helping TA teams attract, engage, hire, onboard, and promote the talent they need to succeed. But built specifically for talent acquisition professionals, the Jobvite Talent Acquisition Suite delivers an unmatched depth of capabilities from AI to DNI, recruitment marketing to applicant management, new hire onboarding, employee referrals, internal mobility, all with next gen analytics to help you prove the value you deliver to your organization. Whatever your recruiting challenge, Jobvite has a solution. Visit jobvite.com slash C-A-T-K today. Again, jobvite.com forward slash C-A-T-K. Now let's get back into the show. And then we come out of the commercial and we have to talk about racism. Yes. But I'll do it. You know, like, not it. like I, you know, I don't take any pleasure and having conversations like this, but 
we do them because it's 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 us. It's who we are. And so we have to be willing to address the subject matter in a way that allows all of us to get closer to it and then figure out how do we we push it out. So I found a story. Uh, it really originally was on USA Today, uh, but it's behind a paywall. So if you just Google search this title, you'll find uh, the story on your own on a number of other places. Most humiliating punishment imaginable. Black National Guardsmen allegedly allegedly forced to wear heavy chain. So now here's the deal, Julie. Um, a heavy chain is like that that chain that we find inside of uh, a number of gymnasiums, um, okay. workout facilities, where if you are trying to add some weight to your dips or add yeah. some weight to your pull-ups, you can put a chain around your body. And I don't know, the chain is 20 pounds, 25 pounds. That's a heavy chain. You're familiar with that because you're in shape. Oh, uh, yeah. You're fit. The one I wear is 50 pounds for sure. <laughs> 50 for real. No. See, oh, no. Look. Yes. all right. Got it. <laughs> got it. So, so this national guardsman, here's the gist of the story. A national guardsman, he and a couple of people apparently left a duty station. They left someplace that they were supposed to be without permission. They left prematurely. They left at a time that was not sanctioned for them to leave. That means they got in their vehicle, they walked through the guard gate, they did something where they weren't where they were supposed to be. And so okay. as a form of punishment, the leadership, the uh, chain of command said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to make you put this chain around your body. Well, the, uh, the uh, individual, his last name is Weaver. He said, well, I'll just drag the chain or, or I'll hold the chain in my hand and I'll just kind of carry it. The leadership said, no, no, you're going to wrap the chain around your shoulder at least one time. You'll wrap it around your arm and then you'll hold it in your hand so that it is on this one side of his body. And from the images that I've seen, Julie, it's on the right side of his body. Mm-hmm. Well, he com- he complained about that. He felt like that was racial. It was reminiscent of slavery. Um it reminded him of the brutal horror of what uh, black people experienced for 400 years, racial, discriminating, degrading. It was all of those things. And he filed several complaints back in 2015. I know. I know what? you're like, Tom, why the hell are we talking about this in 2021? It was back in 2015. So, okay. so what happened was the National Guard did their research, their investigation. Yep. And they said, nah, you can't really substantiate that it was racial. And then they brought in this other group recently, the National Guard Bureau Office of Equity and Inclusion, who actually said, nah, that was a little ugly. That was racial. So we have these conflicting reports. And this is why this case has been going on for six, almost seven years. Here's my challenge. Why is it that inside of these workplaces, we can't come to resolution faster? Why does this litigation have to take so long? Because in the meantime, the people that have caused the infraction, 
more often than not, are still in place, yeah. still being paid, still in leadership. The person who has been aggrieved is still in a subordinate capacity, yeah. probably um, feeling like things can be a bit retaliatory, almost like that whistleblower yeah. atmosphere. It's uncomfortable for everyone. Why does this litigation have to take so long? Do you have any opinion on that, Julie? I mean, my only opinion is one I know that you and I share is that if it was a problem that the system wanted to fix, the system would fix the problem. And this to me, even six years ago, is a fucking no brainer. Right. And I understand, at least tangentially, the need to follow protocols and to do the things that you need to do. And corporal punishment is a part of the military experience. But like you can't put a chain on someone. You can't put a chain on a black man and not expect someone to say, what the fuck? Right? Like it, it's just common yeah, sense. Yeah. And if we can't hold white people to some damn common sense, what the hell can we hold them to? And that's why this takes so long. And that's so, my opinion. So you, so Eugene R. Fidel, he's an expert on military law and a professor at New York, uh, uh, New York University Law School. He referred to the incident as the perfect storm of factors contributing to Weaver's case. Now, Weaver, he lives here outside of the D.C. area. He said, number one, the National Guard across the U.S. lacks oversight by Congress, meaning that your Indiana National Guard can almost do whatever they want. and the Maryland National Guard can do something entirely different from a policy, procedure, practice, culture. They're just autonomous. They are individuals. So they don't have any oversight by Congress. Fidel says, number two, there's little transparency into how state and territorial guard units operate. So now they are cloaked in this degree of secrecy, like doing the little things that they are doing here when they wanted to penalize him. The leadership says, Julie, that all they were doing was trying to tell him, you don't leave your team behind. That's what the leader said. The leader said it wasn't racial in nature. It was we want to remind him and others, you don't leave your brethren behind. You don't leave your partner behind. So Fidel says there's this cloak of secrecy. And then number three, he says there needs to be a uniform process for handling complaints of discrimination. Now, that's the point where I'm like, hell yeah. And so here's what's ill. I mentioned the National Guard Bureau Office of Equity and Inclusion, and they substantiated 11 complaints of discrimination and one complaint of harassment made by Weaver. So the Maryland National Guard said nothing was wrong. And they went through a number of investigations, Jay. Not one, several. This agency said, no, no. We found 11 complaints of discrimination and one complaint of harassment. But check this out. So I went to their website. And I looked at the video on the homepage and it was of a black woman who's a drill sergeant 
talking to new people coming into the National Guard. So, Jay, what do you think she's doing? She's screaming commands. She's telling people to move in this direction. She's telling people to do this. And then she tells this black uh, young cadet, she says, now, you know good and well that your hair can't be black and your bun is red. You know you out of order. And she said, and your hair is jacked up. Your hair is jacked up. Your hair is jacked up. So she's like in these ladies' faces, hollering and screaming. And so I said to myself, how are you supposed to be the governing body? And you won't let a person in the military with red hair and black hair. Yeah. I know I'm being real petty when I say that. (laughs) I know I'm being real petty, but that's the point. Like, what's inclusion? And and how does it look in this organization? And how do we know necessarily? Because I was in the military and I know how these folks are like, no, we're going to make you do some shit that you don't really want to do so that you don't do the thing that you did. Mm -hmm. We're going to make you embarrassed so that you don't do what you did again. We're going to make it painful for you. So I I was a bit conflicted in the story because I didn't come down on Weaver's side. I wasn't against him, but I couldn't adamantly be for him. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an experiencing that, that, you know, you have that Chad has, he, he was a drill sergeant. So I've seen and met the, the bull that is the drill sergeant. Um, and I know why standards and principles are in place and it's to make teams and it's to make a coherent protection force that can protect each other and take care of each other and differences. And a lot of times I think need to be eliminated, or at least that's kind of the military's take. Um, But what we see time and time again is the differences that are punished and eliminated are black differences, that they're they're black soldiers, they're black leaders or lack of black leaders. Just like we talked about a few weeks ago with I think it was the Navy report that came out on um, discrimination within maybe it's the Air Force, Air Force, Force. Force. Um, Force. you know, and. It's, a, it's also a reflection of our society, right, where we are murdering and disrespecting and killing young black men, including young black men who are lieutenants in the United States Army and also full human beings that deserve to be treated with respect by white people in charge. And so it's just, I think, a reflection of exactly what we're seeing every single day on our TV just taking place where we expect better. Where we expect better. What a beautiful, beautiful way for us to like bring it to an end. So I just want people to think about this, you know, when it comes to some of these scenarios that are happening inside of our workplaces, don't drag that shit out for like forever. Like let's get to some degree of resolution in a way that is expedient so that we can get on with the build business of building high performing teams and, incredible cultures. Um, Quick mention before we get out of here, Ramadan started on April 12th and it runs through May 11th this year. So be sensitive of such. If you have people that are of that particular faith, they practice, they believe, 
they participate in the activity of Ramadan. Be conscious of that when you are uh, suggesting various activities, uh, especially if those activities are happening, of course, sun up to sundown. When you are suggesting certain uh, outings, if you will, when you want to hold certain or specific meetings, just be conscious of the individuals in your workplace that um, celebrate, participate in Ramadan, April 12th through May 11th. Name drops. Um, to University of Illinois at Chicago for putting on a fantastic four-week series about the health inequities and discrimination um, that exists within our healthcare system for both people with disabilities and people of color. Kudos to you guys. Good luck. Good luck. Uh, my name drop this week is uh, former police officer Carol Horn, Buffalo Police Department up in New York. Uh, it was announced uh, this week that she was right. She was right, Julie, because 15, 16 years ago, she stopped a fellow police officer from applying a chokehold to a black man who was already handcuffed. As a matter of fact, when she stopped her colleague from applying the chokehold, the colleague was infuriated and they began to fight with one another, two police officers. She was actually fired, fired 15, 16 years ago. The verdict came down this week that she was wrongfully terminated. She gets all of her back pay, her pension, and everything else that she is deserving. And I am extremely happy about that Excellent. because it's a woman who stepped in and said, no, you're not getting ready to do this. A woman stepped in and said, you're not getting ready to do this. A woman stepped in and said, you're not going to do this. Took blows from a fellow police officer. And we got men moving through organizations quiet as church mice. We got men moving through organizations soft as wet tissue paper. A woman stepped in. I'm so extremely happy that the verdict came down. She fought hard. And I'm so glad that the judge, the legal system said you were wrongfully terminated. That police department owes you for everything that you lost. Yep. I'll just say, who runs the world? It, it should be us. Who runs the world? That's right. Close reminding each and every one of you to share the power with your digital tribe and define your voice. Be a better human. Let's create better culture, better teams, and better workplaces. Shout out to Facebook and Workplace. Julie and I are going to be doing some amazing work with them. Stay tuned. Keep listening. For now, Jay and I a ghost. See ya. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.